Establishing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to this ghoulish and devious version of the Science Night Podcast. It is Halloween. This is our 2021 Halloween Spectacular. Tonight, you are going to hear us talk to somebody about the science behind some of our most horrific science fiction. And we're also going to have a companion piece written by the creator of Pulp, from Beyond the Veil, Cody Sullivan. With me tonight is Jason, and I am going to let him attempt to introduce our very special guest. Good. Hey, James, how are you? I'm great. I'm really excited about this episode. Today with us on Science Night, we have my good friend, Bill Sullivan. Bill is the Showalter Professor of Pharmacology and Toxicology at the Indiana University School of Medicine. He's not an old guy, but he spent his lifetime studying the intracellular parasite Toxoplasma gondii, uh, which is something that many of you probably are familiar with or have heard about. And if you haven't, you'll be horrified to hear what it is because you probably are intimately related to it already. In addition, Bill is a fantastic science communicator. I have been working with him for a number of years in that regard here in Indiana and online. Um, He has been a blogger since blogging was cool. He turned that blogging into a fantastic book that's out by uh, National Geographic Press called Please to Meet Me. Um, And so, Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for humoring us today. Hi, Jason. Hi, James. It's great to be here. I love the fact that whenever someone thinks of something spooky and gross, my name pops into their head. I, th- I think we should we should have the caveat of your work pops into their head. Usually my name and visage pops into their head. Uh, <laughs> Bill, tell me, why should I know already about Toxoplasma gondii? Well, Jason, Toxoplasma, as you said, is a single-celled parasite, and Despite the fact that one third of people in the world are infected, the majority of those people aren't even aware that they carry this parasite in their brain. So this parasite is commonly acquired through multiple different ways. That's why it's so widespread. And it's very stealthy. People don't realize they became infected with this parasite. But the real kicker is that it never leaves. You know, most people think if you get infected with a virus or a bacteria, the immune system kicks in and squashes it and it's gone. Toxoplasma cannot be defeated by the immune system and resides as parasitic cysts within the brain, presumably for the rest of that host's life. That's horrifying. Horrifying. And what are they doing? What are these parasites doing in these cysts in my brain? Because I'm sure I have it. They are waiting around. 
for you to be eaten by a lion or a tiger or some kind of feline species. Ultimately, that's what the insisted form's job is. So that's typically not what happens to human beings these days. But in the past, where toxoplasma was evolving these abilities, that might have been a more common occurrence. But humans are not the only species that becomes infected with toxoplasma. This parasite is an astonishing generalist, which means it gets into just about every other animal on the planet. And when it gets into their organs and tissues as a cyst, it can transmit through predation, which means when that infected animal gets eaten by another one, the parasite can spread from one host to the other. That's how it gets around. And it is, in fact, one of the common vehicles of transmission in the humans, because if the parasitic cysts are in the flesh of, say, a pig or a cow or a lamb, and we don't cook the meat sufficiently, that's one of the major ways we become infected with toxoplasma. So that's just adding another layer to my already crazy life <laughs> where I have to worry about, you know, undercooking meat for another reason, right? Thanks, Bill. I, I'm, I'm questioning James why we invited Bill on here because I thought I knew enough about toxoplasma to be able to stomach <laughs> this, but now it's making me a little bit queasier than normal. You mentioned earlier that the ultimate target is a feline species. It makes sense that it can get into all sorts of animals that could potentially be prey for those big cat species or prey for littler cat species. But it doesn't explain sort of the range of types of species that toxoplasma can infect. Not everything is eaten by a cat species. So is that not detrimental or does it not even matter because there's so many of them? So I'm glad you asked that, Jason. That, that's a really good segue into talking about another major way that toxoplasma gets around, and it explains the feline connection. Toxoplasma infects any animal and in any feline, but it's only in the cat species where the parasite undergoes the sexual stage of its life cycle. Ultimately, in order for the parasite to reproduce and evolve changes that may be beneficial for it, it has to get into the gut of a cat. That's the only place on earth that we know of where that sexual stage takes place. And here's where the Halloween spookiness really comes into the equation. Wait, wait, wait. We're not there already? <laughs> Good point. We kind of are there, but here's where it goes into the really deep, dark depths, you know, of evolutionary science. Mm -hmm. So um, toxoplasma, like I said, gets into all these other animals. And you might be wondering, well, if it only has sex in the cat, why does it bother infecting all these other animals? It does that to spread itself around, you know, to toxoplasma's vantage point, the more the merrier. Any species that can reproduce itself effectively comes to dominate. That's just one of the natural forces of evolution. But what toxoplasma can do, evidence is suggesting that when it gets into the brains of these other animals, particularly rodents, okay, one of the major organisms that are prey for feline species, it alters their behavior. And some people might have heard about this toxoplasma being like a zombie parasite, you know, instituting this mind control over its host. And the mechanisms certainly aren't clear, and um, it's still a little controversial in the field. But the evidence that this occurs in rodents is really tight, really good. 
When rodents become infected with toxoplasma, like most other animals, they'll get over the infection quite easily. Many times there won't even be serious symptoms. The parasite just rides out the immune system attack and then resides in the brain for the rest of the host's life. But it raises the question, if you've got all these parasite cysts in the brain, could it potentially be manipulating behavior? And that's exactly what many scientists have seen in the laboratory with their infected rodents. These infected rodents start moving around a lot more. They're more anxious and they take more risks. They're basically not afraid of the normal things that would instill an innate fear in these animals, cats included. So if you take normal mice and then toxoplasma infected mice and put them in a cage with a pad that's been soaked in cat odor, the normal mice will not go near that pad at all. They will stay very far away from it at the other end of the cage. Mm. Whereas the toxoplasma infected mice linger around that scent. Some studies even suggest they're attracted to it. So they really lose their fear of predator signals, which consequently is going to make them more susceptible to being eaten by the cat. And that's exactly where toxoplasma wants to go so it can complete its life cycle. And by completing that life cycle, the cat then spews out oocysts for like a two-week period. Oocysts, you can think about those as like the the eggs of the parasite. Okay, They're very sturdy containers. When the cat releases these oocysts into the litter box, sandbox, or the environment, Those things are stable for about one to two years and can easily be picked up by another animal through accidental ingestion or even inhalation. And this is how a lot of other animals, including humans, uh, acquire toxoplasma infection. Well, now I have to rethink my relationship with one of our cats who I am her person and she spends all of her time near me. And I'm just wondering if there's something going on there, right? Is the toxoplasma that is infecting my brain driving me toward her, driving her toward me. Now I have actual nightmares to think about. Thanks, Bill. I can understand that. But my job here today is not to make people freak out about their cats. Most household cats are probably perfectly fine. And you got to keep in mind that if your cat becomes infected with toxoplasma, you're talking about a one to two week window where it's expelling oasis. And that's it. And after that, the animal's immune. Now, what you do have to be careful of is responsible pet ownership. You know, Mm -hmm. just don't feed your cat raw or undercooked meat products. Maybe keep your cat indoors so it doesn't eat a contaminated bird or mouse out in the field. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, clean the litter box carefully and quickly and wash your hands after doing so. So you you can safely own a cat. It's not going to be transmissible through petting your cat or getting licked by your cat. It's cleaning the litter box that's most important. And we should state that, you know, if you're a pregnant woman, you definitely should get someone else to clean the litter box because there's a very dangerous possibility where if you become infected for the first time in your life while you are pregnant, toxoplasma can cross the placenta and cause miscarriage or infect the fetus, which can lead to pretty devastating birth defects. So most doctors will warn pregnant women about that possibility, but congenital toxoplasmosis is why physicians tell pregnant women to avoid cleaning the litter box and even things like gardening or playing with Mm -hmm. their children in a sandbox. Anywhere a cat might have gone to the bathroom, uh, pregnant women are going to need to 
pay special mind not to get infected. Excellent. Thank you, Bill, so much for reassuring me that it's okay <laughs> to still hang around with my cats. Don't want to make people afraid of cat ownership. You just need of course to follow not, of course some not. very simple common sense rules. And keep in mind that you're you know, just as susceptible to infection if you consume rare or undercooked meat or contaminated water or unwashed vegetables from your garden, things like that. There's, there's just so many ways this parasite can get into you. But just following some simple hygiene rules, you can avoid getting infected. Yep. Or it might be too late. Just saying. Well, that's so another let's... good question. What if it's too late? A lot of people wonder, you know, if, if the parasite can do that to a rodent brain, why aren't people like throwing themselves into the lion's cage at the zoo? You know, why are people more readily consumed by <clears throat> feline species? And that's a really interesting question. And of course, we're not as easy to study as rodents, especially in a controlled mm -hmm. laboratory setting. So we have to rely on correlation studies and look at right. people who are who test positive for toxoplasma infection or not. Let's talk about this for a second. So what is a correlation study versus a causation study, right? Because um, this is an important thing that is often neglected in the media is that when there's a correlation between more than one variable, it doesn't always mean that either one is the root cause of the other, right? So when you say correlational studies, why is this less than perfect? Well, that's right, because correlation and causation are not the same thing. Just because you see two things trending together does not mean that one causes the other. There are this group of things called confounding variables that may be responsible for that connection, or the connection just may be a coincidence. So when we talk about causation, there's a definitive link, and that's usually done in a controlled experimental setting where you can definitively prove it by excluding confounding variables, by excluding coincidence from the equation. Mm -hmm. But most things that we connect are actually correlations. So the correlation with toxoplasma uh, in people is that there's a higher risk of schizophrenia and a number of other neuropsychoses, including rage disorder. And mm. uh, just like we see in rodents, uh, right. risk, risk taking, you know, uh, gamblers tend to be more positive for toxoplasma uh, than um, people who aren't. And you're also three times more likely to be in a car accident if you test positive for toxoplasma. Again, kind of consistent with the risk-taking mm -hmm. behavior. Those are all very tantalizing connections, but they're sure. not a smoking gun because there's many other possibilities that could explain those patterns that we see. And there are people with schizophrenia who do not test positive for toxoplasma. So there's clearly other variables involved, and it's premature to make definitive leaps. You can't jump to these conclusions just based on a correlation. There's a famous uh, cartoon of this. It's kind of a knockoff of the correlation between autism and vaccines. Okay, there's right. a correlation because autism just so happens to appear roughly about the same time children get their vaccines. Okay, right. That's when it shows itself. If you didn't know better, you'd look at those two patterns and you become alarmed, but it's not causation. You can do the same exact graph and see that autism rises. It trends with the rise in popularity of organic foods, but mm -hmm. no one's going to say that eating organic causes autism. So just right, because right. two things trend together and correlate doesn't mean one is responsible for the other. Right. There's that classic statistics example that many people are sort of taught in school, and that is that there's a correlation between the number of ice cream cones consumed at the beach and drowning in the ocean. And it's not because eating an ice cream cone makes you drown in the ocean. It's because 
there are more people at the beach in the summertime eating ice cream cones. And when there are more people at the beach, there are going to be more drownings in absolute number, not necessarily in higher proportion. It's not a causational thing. It's a correlational thing. So let's pivot for a second then and talk about something a little less horrifying to me, but no less horrifying to the ants that are at the root of all of this, or at least are being acted upon. And that is fungus that controls ant brains like zombies. This is crazy stuff. I've heard you talk about this before. What can you tell us? Yeah, the zombie ant fungus, which could not be more appropriately named and is truly a remarkable feat of evolution, kind of illustrates the miracles that evolution can pull off if you give it enough time. So let's talk about this zombie ant fungus. Ants live on the ground, they're walking around, and they happen to pick up some spores at one point or another. These, these fungal spores infect an ant's body and start to commandeer. You know, they take over the ant. They um, influence its neurochemistry in ways that are just beginning to become elucidated. So in these teeny tiny ant brains, this fungus takes over their neurochemistry and causes them to behave in ways that an ant normally would not behave. Mm. So when an ant becomes infiltrated by this fungus, it leaves the colony, it leaves its buddies and starts climbing up some of the plants that are in the jungle. And it adheres itself to the underside of that plant. It just sinks its mandibles into the flesh of the leaf there and mm -hmm. just stays put. Meanwhile, the fungus is growing and it completely consumes the body of the ant. You know, it just uses up the ant for nourishment and it basically starts launching these stalks out of the corpse of the ant's body. And those stalks release fungal spores that then rain down onto the forest floor upon all of those ant buddies, all of his comrades. So that's how the spores get into additional ants and the cycle repeats itself. So it's a, it's a really haunting and remarkable example of real world zombies, mind control. It's, it's analogous to what parasites like toxoplasma might be doing to the brains of rodents and maybe other right. animals. But we see that no species seems to be free um, whenever a parasite of some kind can get a foothold, it's going to take advantage of that opportunity and utilize that life form in order to spread itself around. I think what we're seeing here is the similarities between what we would consider like the Hollywood zombie, the George Romero zombie, and things that are infected with toxoplasma, with these fungi, is that there is, to some degree, a loss of autonomy, right? It is, uh, you are no longer necessarily acting the way that you would if this parasite was not present, if this fungus was not present. And I think that's what leads people to think of these hordes of undead you know we're not talking i guess i guess if we're getting to the point where ants are shooting sprouts we might consider that undead at this point no no it's still a hoax <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know 
One of my favorite things to do is look at nature and then see, like, this is where sci-fi comes from, obviously. On the one hand, it is so interesting and origin of some of these science fiction ideas is really can be seen in nature. I'm worried now a lot because it is <laughs> way easier to think about a zombie apocalypse when you think about that I can't even see than things that, that always sure. seemed a little more fiction than science, right? I mean, yeah, they were working under scientific principles here, but because we're living in a pandemic now in a zombie apocalypse, a zombie apocalypse, right? Thank, well, not, thankfully. Not yeah, the truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, a lot of these examples exist out there and science fiction uh, in a very entertaining way, most of it has a kernel of truth. You know, it's based on some kind of real world example. Of course, uh, they take liberty with it and start to extrapolate and, and exaggerate. But that's what makes the uh, film entertaining. It's really interesting to think that this mind controlling stuff, and James hit it on the head, this is like a fate worse than death. Because you're mm -hmm. still alive, yet you're not yourself anymore. And you don't control yourself anymore. So, yeah, that's that's really frightening because death would be a welcome reprieve uh, if that were the case, you know, for most people. And uh, that's where actually zombies get their root. I mean, the, the origins of zombies mm -hmm. is based in a real world religion that evolved from, sadly enough, the slave trade in Haiti. So, you know, this was this was a real concept. And then once people started realizing that there are infectious agents out there that can take over the mind and possibly manipulate the host. Yeah, your imagination can just run wild and you get this wonderful spectrum of science fiction, some better than others, that <laughs> make you wonder at night. You know, some of these horror films can keep you up because, you know, a lot of them like ghosts and ghouls, you know, that that's probably that's nonsense. That's that doesn't happen. But infections happen and you right, can right. you can make that real life leap a little more easily when when the horror film is grounded in some kind of kernel of truth let's turn then to another example of sort of these halloween monsters that are rooted in science and let's talk about werewolves what can you tell us about the origin of werewolves werewolves have a very complex origin and it, it can go all the way back to greek mythology but where the science comes in, and I'm not saying it might have started the werewolf legend, but it might have fueled it to a sure. degree. There are, you know, rare but real genetic variations in people that control hair growth. Okay. One of the genetic disorders that usually comes up in discussions about werewolves is called CHL, and it stands for congenital hypertrichosis langenose. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but, you know, scary conditions need a scary name. Right. So CHL is a genetic variation, very rare, but when it happens, it's very memorable. Okay. Mm -hmm. You, you will not forget this because what that genetic variation causes is excessive hair growth in mm -hmm. areas where you normally don't grow hair, including the forehead and on the cheeks. Now, I hasten to add, it doesn't change anyone's behavior at all. So it's not like, um, you know, they become ferocious uh, or, mm -hmm. you know, go out and howl at the moon. That's not what happens. But there's a real morphological change in that person with respect to the amount of hair that their body has. And you can imagine in the past when there was no understanding of genetics or mutations that would produce these kinds of physical changes, 
people like that would have been looked upon with great suspicion, great superstition, uh, probably ostracized, and you'd invent all these mm-hmm. terrible stories about them because the, the root word of monster is warning. And they would call these people monsters because they are exhibiting an anomalous behavior or feature that we don't understand. And that's, that's basically what it boils down to. The brain doesn't like not understanding things, and it usually goes to fear rather than rationality in trying to figure out what's going on. So the most famous person with CHL is probably the famous bearded lady who toured the circus in the 1800s, Julia Pastrana, I believe her name was. If you Google the pictures, you will see you know, remarkable resemblance to mm-hmm. what most people conjure up when they think of werewolves. And if you go back and think how common rabies was in the old days right. before the vaccine, what if someone somewhere along the way had CHL and then got rabies, you'd have all the ingredients you need for a ferocious werewolf legend to be born. Like I said, that's very rare, but if it does happen, you can imagine how that would go through the rumor mill, right? And spread around and become so memorable that it becomes legendary. One of my favorite things is looking at these legends that it's easy for science to just kind of write off as like, oh, well, that's just something out of myth. And we don't have to really worry or put too much time or effort into understanding it. But if you go back far enough, you can kind of find that link about how it works its way into our folklore. And I often talk about something like the Bigfoot myth or the Yeti myth. And while like, I'm not going to say that there's a Yeti or a Bigfoot roaming the mountains, at least none that I could potentially identify. If you go back far enough, there's some overlap, potentially, with humans and something called Gigantopithecus, which is like a nine-foot-tall orangutan. And I will make the leap that if I was an anatomically modern human living in that area at that time and I saw a Gigantopithecus, I would never have shut up about it again. And I can see how that can work its way into our folklore, just how somebody with a condition where they have an abnormal hair growth pattern on their face and head and body and rabies would make me never shut up about that again. So that is fascinating and another glimpse into how these things work into our folklore and another like, Hey, science, we don't need to be afraid of this all the time. We can talk about fun things too. You got to remember way back when this stuff would have happened, there was no Netflix. There was no internet. There were no movie theaters. We were storytellers. We were songwriters, you know, and and we, we told these strange tales Um, that may have been based in someone's reality at some point, but that's how it would have spread around and become a legend that everyone remembers because they are unforgettable. Even if you didn't see them, just hearing the descriptions, you know, you you won't forget that anytime soon. And it's fun to tell the story and it's fun to listen to it. All of that is because humans are uniquely evolved to use storytelling to pass on information. Storytelling is a universal human trait. It happens in every single culture in some form or another. It doesn't happen in every species, but it happens in humans, and our brains are wired to use that mode 
to pass information from one generation to the next. And so it's fun for us to listen to those stories and it's fun for us to tell those stories because it's rewarding because it's the way that we evolved to communicate. It's fascinating. And it's why putting stories of science into the descriptions of scientific outcomes and research is paramount to making it understandable for the general population, making it accessible to those who are curious. They're going to be curious because humans are curious by nature. They're going to hear you because if you tell them a good story, they have no choice but to listen to it and find it interesting. It's just the way we're wired. Are there any other of the standard like Hollywood monsters that can work their way into our folklore? There, I'm sure, is... Equal parts fascinating and super depressing stories because, you know, I'm sensing that a lot of these go back to somebody was kind of different and humanity ostracized them. That's actually the sad truth behind a lot of monster legends. It's just something we fail to understand. And most of these legends arose in times where we didn't know anything about infectious disease, germs, genetics, toxins, or anything like that. So we're, you know, completely operating in the dark and the brain's a very conservative organ. It wants to keep you alive so that you can reproduce. So it's going to err on the side of caution and lean more towards paranoia. Now, fortunately, we've evolved to a point where our culture has gotten so strong in terms of sharing knowledge. And with the help of the enlightenment, we learn to interrogate nature and we explain a lot of these mysteries. And um, to me, it doesn't like demystify them to a great deal where they become less entertaining. It actually makes them more enthralling, in my opinion, to, to understand the nuts and bolts behind that. But you mentioned vampires, and there's a number of interesting connections between vampire folklore and real world events, you know, diseases or infections. We've already mentioned rabies, and there was a scientist who published a paper not too long ago who drew several parallels between rabies infection and elements of vampire folklore. So some of these include, I mean, I think most of your listeners know what happens when people get infected with rabies. There's this foaming at the mouth. There's this hyperaggression. It's it's caused by a virus that slowly migrates to the brain. And again, like toxoplasma, causes these behavioral changes to take place in the host. So rabies spreads through the saliva. That's where the most of the viral particles are concentrated. And in order to get from one host to another, it makes that infected host aggressive and tending to bite. And that's the means of transmission, how it can hop to a new host. You can imagine someone who's infected with the rabies virus and suddenly becomes very aggressive, loses their humanity, and starts biting a lot. That's one of the elements we see in vampirism, a transmission through a bite. And that's precisely uh, how rabies transmits. There's also hydrophobia, which is a fear of water. Everyone knows that vampires are afraid of holy water, but people who are infected with rabies are afraid of drinking water. They will swat it away very violently because Even though they might be very thirsty, they can't consume that water. The virus paralyzes the throat muscles, and that's what's causing the high concentration of saliva to stay in the mouth because they can't swallow. So as much as they want to drink water, they simply can't do so. There's also um, an increased sex drive. You see that in vampire films as well as individuals infected with rabies. 
And then finally, there's the connection to bats. Uh, vampires transform into bats, and bats happen to be one of the major vehicles, uh, reservoirs for the rabies virus. So I thought that was really compelling correlations between the rabies virus and some of our vampire folklore. Another disease that is commonly associated with possibly fueling vampire legends is porphyria, which I know you guys might think of, oh, that's a lost Def Leppard album, but porphyria is actually (laughs) a genetic disorder and it's a blood disorder. You know, I think everyone knows that heme is a major component of blood. It carries the oxygen throughout your body, delivers it to the organs and tissues that need it. But heme is built from a, a group of molecules called porphyrins. And these are light activated molecules. And if you have this blood disorder, which again is a genetic variation, you can't build enough heme. These porphyrins accumulate in the skin. And those cause a number of symptoms that we commonly associate with vampirism. One of the main ones being that they're light activated chemicals. So if that person goes out into the sun, very quickly, their skin is going to burn and ulcerate, just like a vampire who steps into the sunshine and begins Mm. to melt. This porphyria resembles that phenomenon. These people also tend to be rather sickly and pale, and that paleness exemplifies the gums. Their mouth looks red, almost as if they've consumed a blood meal, and their gums recede, so their canines are more pronounced, which again, looking consistent with what we think about when we picture a vampire in our mind. And then to top it all off, their urine tends to be reddish brown because of the, the porphyrin accumulation. Mm-hmm. And if you saw that or, or heard someone complaining about it, you'd be like, well, they must have drank blood. You know, that's why right, the right. urine has changed color. So you put all these seemingly unrelated factors together about porphyria. And you think about that in, a, in, you know, in the dark ages when we didn't understand much about disease, you can see how that could shape or fuel vampire legends. Bill, thank you so much for coming with us on this journey through the spooky things in science. If you want to follow me, my name is James Reed. I should give you my name. My name is James Reed. You can follow me at James underscore Reed Three, Jason, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at OrganJM. And Bill, I want you to tell our listeners where they can follow you, where they can support you, where they can find the work that you are doing. Thanks, James. Uh, people should go to www.authorbillsullivan.com. All of my information, articles I've written, stuff about the book is all there. My social media uh, buttons are there. I'm most active on Twitter at WJ Sullivan. Thank you so much. And we are going to throw to another Sullivan in the Science Night family of podcasting, that being Cody Sullivan with his original work, Bit. You can find out more about him by following his podcast, Pulp, from Beyond the Veil. That will do it for us. Listen to Cody's story, and we will be back in one week with another episode of the Science Night podcast. Until then... Happy Halloween.
Well, I got bit. Understatement of the damn year, all things considered. I almost made it, too. Thing is, despite what George Romero plunged into our collective subconsciousness, these things move quick. Damn quick. And the hallway outside my apartment made for a pretty decent sprint to reach the elevator and slam shut the scissor gates before one of those things could catch me from behind and and make a meal out of me. And yet, it's not as though being a snack is doing me any better. I've never been the sentimental type, so to me, dying in this busted elevator is as good as any. And if these gates hold, then at least... Well, assuming Romero isn't wrong, then there shouldn't be any blood on my hands when this thing is through. One more loop of tape should stop the bleeding. With a wince and grit of my teeth, I wrapped the roll of duct tape, flecks of original gray peeking out from behind a sheen of red, around the ruined stump that was my right foot, all the while my pursuer gnashed at the little bits of flesh between the webbing of my toes. So I made it to the elevator just fine. I didn't want to risk taking the stairs, knowing damn well there are 24 units in this building. Assuming not everyone lives alone like me, I'd estimate a good 60 or so people live here. Well... Used to, judging by the screams. Sometime yesterday evening, I heard the first one. Sounded like an old woman. Maybe Joanne from 8C, just above my unit. Didn't last long, though. Went quiet before I could even try to phone emergency services. Which, of course, didn't pick up. City of 11 million people, all trying to get a hold of the police simultaneously. And what do they do? Shut the damn phones off. I remember there was gunfire outside. And as I shook the sleep out of my head, I noticed the distant sound of screaming. Not just from my building, but from, seemingly, all around. This time I tried the police station directly only to hear the familiar dated sounds of a tone indicating a busy line. Hanging up the call is when I noticed all the notifications. Bright and little neat icons all in a row. Texts, emails, voicemails, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, CNN, and Fox News all lined up, waiting to let me know that the world as we know it had ended while I was sleeping, phone on silent, lying on the nightstand. Lying there in that elevator, I reached for the phone in my pocket to try and get a hold of someone, anyone, who might know what had happened while I was in La La Land. And that's when it went off. That's when I learned some confirmation that Romero wasn't completely wrong. These things, they're attracted to sound. Biological hazard in your area. If you are outside, 
And there they all were. The residents of 448 Lafayette Street, mangled, though they be, with crimson patches of torn flesh and dangling skin, teeth bared savagely, and their watery, unfocused eyes staring unblinking at me through the gates. A throng of reaching arms through the bars of the gate groped at the air just a few feet away from my face as the warning's tinny message ended abruptly. I was sure of it now. If this thin metal gate could hold back the weight of a dozen pissed-off ghouls intent on devouring what's left of me, then it sure as shit would keep me in here when... Well, when... I reached down and peeled back the tattered remains of my pajama bottoms. Blue flannel, save for the blood, and began studying the stump of my right foot. It's fairly easy to assume that because there are so many of these ghouls in the city that this infection, or whatever it is, is transmissible. I got bit, so I think I can assume I'm next. As soon as I had accepted this rationale, I saw it. Thin black lines radiating from the site of my wound, inching steadily up my leg. The whole stump itched like a million tiny mosquito bites, and I strongly resisted the urge to scratch. I fell back in an amalgam of pain and exhaustion as I struggled to control my breathing. That was it. I got bit. I'm as good as dead. Sometime later, I began to get a grip on what was left of my sanity. It helped that the zombies' chatter had died down. Oh, they were still there at the gates, arms fully extended through the bars. But at least now they were silent. I began to come to terms with the finality of my situation. I decided to play the role of keen scientific observer in the waning moments of my life and autonomy, plainly wondering which one would go first. The former residents of 448 Lafayette Street were ghastly to look at, but safely doomed behind these bars, I began to think of myself as a regular David Attenborough of the dead. I wondered why they stopped chattering, moaning, groaning. They were so quiet that closing my eyes I had to fight off the urge to sleep my last moments away. They were still too, like statues dripping with blood and saliva as their cloudy eyes stared through me. When I got tired of them looking at me, I picked up a screwdriver from the toolbox in the corner and hurled it at who I think used to be the doorman. It was hard to be sure, because his mouth had torn at the seams and his dislocated jaw elongated his head, giving him an uncanny and wild look. The screwdriver hit its mark between the eyes. Nothing. No reaction at all. No flinching, wincing, gasping, nothing. Just his dumb, broken-jawed smile and hands reaching hopelessly towards me. The fever I had suspected was coming on could no longer be denied. Pain was throbbing with every heartbeat from the stump of my foot throughout my body, 
and the black lines of infection had skirted up past my groin and circumnavigated either side of my navel. And then there was the saliva. It came oozing from beneath my tongue like some hidden levee had given way for all the moisture in my body to run out of me. Sweat, blood, and spit. No one said dying was going to be pretty. And then there was the thirst. My parched throat ached, and I was keenly aware of something my father used to say to me when he'd shoot down my asking for the car keys. People in hell want ice water. They do. The pain that began in my leg had hitched a ride on the Black Vein Highway and was now wreaking havoc inside my chest. Arrhythmia, like I'd never felt before, stole my breath away as I tried to check my pulse. My best efforts put my dying heart somewhere between 160 and 170 beats per minute before another jolt of pain threw my hands down by my sides. Like all things circling the drain, the end of my life was picking up the pace and I'd be dead probably less than a minute. I heard the unmistakable popping of gunfire somewhere down below. The lobby, maybe. Automatic from the sound of it. Yes, I could even hear the boots coming up the stairs. Six camouflaged soldiers burst through the stairwell door, reawakening the frozen tableau of ghouls. The sound was too much, stabbing my ears as I cupped my hands over them and began shaking. I opened one blurry eye to see the undead residents of 448 Lafayette being cut down by the gunfire before my eyes in a misty spray of red. I wanted to stay there and lie on the ground, pretending I was dead. I began to feel something strange. My fingers began twitching, and it suddenly felt like my arms were filled with writhing snakes of corded muscle. I rolled onto my stomach, and my arms began to push me up, facing the noise. There was the answer. The autonomy goes first. My vision was nearly indecipherable now as the part of my brain responsible for processing visual information was boiling away in the pressure cooker of my skull. There were people talking, but I could no longer understand them. I only knew I was on my feet, well, my foot and stump, because I suddenly could only sense the ground beneath them and my hands outstretched. Something was touching my face. Metal. Metal from the gate. I was reaching out to them. I wanted to touch them. My last thoughts were that more than anything I wanted I wanted I wanted to bite them all clear keep moving
moving. 